We've been studying the book of Genesis for some time now. We started the book of Genesis in January of uh, 2020, not knowing that God was going to take us through quite a journey this year, allow uh, many obstacles and situations to come up in our life that were so unexpected. Situations that we would have never planned for, never imagined. But God was sovereign over all of this. He decided to allow us to have three full months at a youth center of studying the word, studying the book of Genesis. And then he pulled us from there and brought us back here to the home. And we spent some time in other chapters and other books of the Bible, but we are now led back into the book of Genesis to finish studying it. And one thing we see through the stories of God's people is how God is all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's always present. And he gives us hope. He gives us hope because he's sovereign. His sovereignty, it's, it's all-powerful sovereignty, meaning that He's in control of our destiny, our fate. When we study God's sovereignty, we see that he's in control of the fate of our lives. That he gives us both free will to be able to choose where we are going to go, where, what we're going to worship. But he still, his sovereignty is above all. And in our life, when we come across these hard situations where we don't know what's right and wrong, where we are unsure that tomorrow the, we're going to have provision, when we're unsure of what our leaders are going to be leading us into. With all of this, we know that God is still in control, not man. And we've been seeing this through the lives of God's people. In the book of Genesis, it follows the man Abraham, who was given a promise that through him, there was going to be nations born through his children. And Abraham struggled with believing in God's promises. So much so that he attempted to bring God's promises on his own time, in his own way. And in doing so, he ended up feeding his flesh he ended up being immoral and impatient. And his actions caused him to end up in situations that were unfortunate. You reap what you sow. The Bible teaches us this. And when you reap, when you sow to the flesh, 
You're going to reap of the flesh. When we left off with Abraham, we were studying how he just lost his wife, Sarah. After her death, he, he was mourning her loss and they buried her in the cave of Machpelah. And then to ensure his family and to ensure that his sons would be raised in a godly home, he sent for a bride for his son, Isaac. And we saw how God was sovereign in Isaac's life. That Isaac wasn't even on the look for a date or he wasn't getting back then on the, uh, the apps that were leading him to w- other tribes' women. But he waited patiently. And the Lord, using the servant, brought Rebecca to Isaac. Abraham sent the servant to go find a wife, a bride for his son. And the Lord blessed this journey. And so Rebecca and Isaac became husband and wife. And we studied how this was a picture of Christ and the church, how marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. You see, Jesus is the groom and the church is going to be the bride and the Holy Spirit is that servant who went to go look for the bride, brings the church to Christ. And it was a beautiful picture. Now, leaving this portion of scripture where Isaac and Rebekah just got married, Abraham is now in his old age. And it says now in Genesis chapter 25, beginning with verse one, Abraham again took a wife and her name was Keturah. And she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Midan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. And Jokshan begot Sheba and Dadan. And the sons of Dadan were Ashurim, Latushim, and Lemumin. And the sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Anak, Abida, and Elda. Now we have to memorize these all, and I'm going to test us next week on all of these names. I'm just kidding. All these were the children of Keturah. Now, as I read that portion, I was kind of interested in like, wow, Abraham's like 170-something years old, and he's still getting married? Now, keep in mind, he, at this point in his life, it's very possible that he could have been marrying a wife named Keturah. But it's also possible that he actually married Keturah while Sarah was still alive and his wife. That he took Keturah as a concubine and had these sons through her uh, during the time that Sarah was still alive. And people, scholars to this day, are, are not agreed on the chronology of when this took place. As I read it, it, it would make sense that Abraham took Keturah as a wife uh, 
before, but it's also not impossible for him to have had all these children at, at such an old age. So the jury is still out for when exactly he did marry Katira and have all these other children. Another thing I noticed, though, in verse 2, is it mentioned a son by the name of Midian. Now, Midian, we later on find out that the Midian knights, all born from this son named Midian, become this tribe of people who actually end up taking Joseph, who later on is one of Jacob's sons. They take Joseph as a slave when his brothers sell Joseph into slavery. So we see that these sons that Abraham bore, they actually were having many children and they spread out throughout the nations. It says in verse 5, And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But Abraham gave gifts to the sons of of the concubines which Abraham had. And the concubines which Abraham had, and while he was still living, he sent them eastward, away from Isaac his son, to the country of the east. Now, he may have done this perhaps to ensure the inheritance of his own son Isaac, knowing that God had promised him that through his son there would be many nations and that there would be kingdoms. He may have sent these other sons away so that they would not try to take over Isaac and take over Isaac's offspring. It says in verse 7, This is the sum of years of Abraham's life which he lived. 175 years. That's pretty old. Now, back then, their, their bodies were much different than what we experience here today. If you remember, Abraham was scared that other men would find his wife, Sarah, to be very beautiful, so much to the point that he would lie about who she was so that other men wouldn't kill him and try to take Sarah for themselves. He would say that she was my sister. And this was when they were in their 70s and 80s. So for him to be convinced that other men would try to steal Sarah from him in her 80s, their bodies must have developed at a much slower rate, uh, or aged, I should say, at a much slower rate, which would make sense of why Abraham was able to live to such an old age. It says in verse 8, Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. And his son Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. Then Abraham was buried and Sarah his wife. And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac. And Isaac dwelt at Ber Laharoi. 
Now Abraham, he ran his race. He ran his race, and we know that he made it into eternity with God. At a good old age, he was buried in the same cave that he bought for his wife. He wanted to be buried with her. That was the loyalty and love that Abraham did have towards his wife, Sarah. Now, Abraham wasn't a perfect man. He had many flaws, which we read about. And as we read about all of his lapses of faith, we find comfort knowing that he wasn't perfect, but God used him greatly. God used him as an example in our own life of what it means to have faith, to trust God. Even in giving up your most prized possession to the Lord, offering up his son Isaac as a sacrifice. And then God stopped him and said, the Lord will provide himself a sacrifice through Abraham. So now his son Isaac is dwelling there and we now are going to follow the line of Isaac as we continue in this genealogy. It says in verse 12, now this is the genealogy of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's maidservant, bore to Abraham. And these were the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names according to their generations. The firstborn of Ishmael, Nebajoth, then Kedar, Abdiel, Mibasam, and in verse 16, it says, these were the sons of Ishmael, and these were their names. And you could read the list of names there and their proper pronunciations. It says, these were the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. And he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They dwelt from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt as you go toward Assyria. He died in the presence of all his brethren. Now notice there are 12 nations that also come from Ishmael. Now Ishmael was this product of Abraham's lapse of faith. Abraham still loved Ishmael. He prayed that God would bless Ishmael, which God did bless Ishmael. But it was a result of Abraham's actions as he agreed to Sarah's idea. When Sarah realized, I'm so old, I might not have a child through you, Abraham, for you. She said, why don't you just take my maid, Hagar, marry her, have a child with her, and God will bless that child, and that will be the promised child that God told you about. And Abraham agreed with this, and he went along with this, and as a result, him diving into his flesh, these nations that would rise up, many of them would turn to plague the Israelites in the future. It says in verse 19, this is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son, 
Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padanaram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife, because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. So there's now this following of Isaac. He went to his father's house, the servant did, and from Laban's family brought back Rebekah to Isaac. And now as they're trying to have children, there's a problem that arises. Rebecca is unable to become pregnant. And it becomes so intense, this desire for a child and the inability to have one, that Isaac begins to plead to God for his wife. And uh, I have good friends who've experienced this. Friends and family members who have prayed and sought for children to, to be born in their life. And sometimes there is that struggle. And I can only imagine that desire being strong and the disappointment when the pregnancy test doesn't come back as a positive. And then not only that, but when those disappointments turn as far as, as losing a child, as miscarriages, you have no other choice but to turn to the Lord and trust that he has life in the palm of his hands. See, life is so precious God is the author of life. He puts his image onto his people. This is why there's such an uproar for the, the children who are, who are murdered in the womb. This is why that God in his word teaches that conception that life begins in the womb and that women were not to make their wombs a graveyard. This is why uh, as believers, we're pro-life, we're anti-murder. And we could go on and on about that topic. But the point here is that Isaac began to plead to God that life would begin in Rebecca's womb. It says the Lord granted his plea and finally Rebecca, his wife conceived. And then in verse 22, but the children struggled together within her. And she said, if all is well, why, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations 
are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now, as Rebecca finally gets this gift of life within her womb, perhaps she's thinking, yes, the Lord granted my desire. He answered our prayers. Things are going to be good. And she's quickly met with trial, quickly met with pains and confusion of what's happening within her womb, where she begins to ask God, why, why are these Why are these pains happening within me? And God told her, you're prego with two nations inside of you. Now, he gives a prophecy, the Lord, to Rebecca, that there's twins inside of her, that from each of these young men, two nations are going to come. And he promises that the older is going to serve the younger of the two. And we have to keep this in mind. Because later on, we're going to see exactly that take place. And it happens in a way that's kind of ironic. But look at verse 24. It says, so when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, Indeed, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out. And his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Now notice as these two children are born, the first one coming out red. They named him Esau and his name literally means red and hairy. So as we read about Esau and the the type of character he was, his name fit his characteristics. He came out looking red and he had hair all over him. And later on, as we continue to see the story unfold, the account unfold, we're going to learn that Esau was, in fact, a hairy man. And Jacob, Jacob, the J with the the Y sound is the proper Hebrew. Jacob, his name, since he was holding the hand of Esau as he was coming out of the womb, his name literally means hill catcher. And this name, it wasn't a name that was a nice name. It was actually one originally of kind of ill manner, meaning this kind of sneaky, conniving, manipulative, heel-catching type of character. And as we see the life of Jacob unfold, we're going to see how God takes Jacob from being this manipulative, controlling type of character to later on breaking him to the point where he later in his life will name him Israel, meaning governed by God. 
Now, Isaac is 60 years old when they have these children. Remember, he was in his 40s when they got married, the Bible told us. So one thing I do note about Isaac is he gives a lot of us single guys before, you know, we're young, but he had to wait till he was 40 to get married. So if you're still there, see, there's hope for you. (laughs) Now in verse 27, so the boys grew and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man, dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, one thing I, I want to note and express is there are some favoritisms that are taking place now within this family unit. You see, Esau was this manly man, this a man's man who was a hunter, a man of the field. And because of this, his dad loved him. He's like, yes, oh, 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 like hunter man. This is my son. This is whom I love. But Jacob was a little milder. And he liked to hang around the tent. And his mom loved him because he was always around. And this favoritism, it's going to badly affect the family unit as we read on. It says in verse 29, Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with the same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, Sell me your birthright, as of this day. And Esau said, look, I am about to die. So what is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now we have this famous account in the Bible of these two brothers. Of the beginning of their recorded contentions. See Jacob dwelling near the tents. He's making this stew and Esau comes in from a hunt. and He's tired. Perhaps he didn't catch anything quickly or We know he was hungry nonetheless. So when he sees Jacob and the stew that he made, he says, hey, give me this food. I'm I'm so tired. And Jacob says, I'll give you the food, brother, but you have to give me your birthright. Now the birthright, what is that? The birthright is this inheritance that was promised to the firstborn. He was the one who was going to lead the family unit, the the nations coming from Isaac, supposed to. And he would get a double portion 
of whatever his father's inheritance was, more so than all the other children. And he was going to be the next patriarch. And Jacob, seeing his opportunity to steal this from his own brother, uses his brother's hunger against him, uses his brother's weakness against him, says, okay, give me your birthright. Give me that first place as firstborn, and I'm going to give you this food. Now, there is a symbolism here. As Esau is coming in tired and weak, he's first thinking about feeding his flesh. He's not thinking about the morality of the situation. He's not thinking about the spiritual implications of what these actions will lead to. He's simply looking to feed his flesh. And at times when we dive into the flesh, we forsake conviction of the Holy Spirit. We forsake the discernment of the Holy Spirit, the wisdom of God. And many times this leads directly into sin. Sometimes we are in our weakest point and Satan knows our weaknesses, so he tries to attack us when we're weak and give us what is going to meet that instant gratification. Remember Jesus, when he was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, and he was fasting for 40 days, Satan came to him. And the very first thing that Satan attacks him with is that immediate desire that Jesus had, which he was hungry. And Satan tempted him, hey, since you're the son of God, make these stones turn into bread and feed your flesh. But by doing so, he would have been disobeying his heavenly father. And he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. This is a message to us that many times we are tempted with the temptation of self-gratification, of success, of goals and dreams in our life that have nothing to do with godliness or holiness. And we will put aside what God is calling us to, which is holiness, living in truth, a calling so that we can get our instant gratification. And this action, which Esau is enacting in, would be the beginning of Esau losing this position as firstborn, as the leader. Later on in the, in, in the New Testament, it teaches us that Esau he despised his birthright, that he would end up in, in tears over this situation. 
And it's a, a reminder for us when we are tempted, when we are put in that situation, what does the word of God teach us? Submit to God, resist the devil, and the devil will flee. So Esau sells his birthright. Now in chapter 26, we're going to look a little bit back of, at Isaac again, the father, and see he takes on some of the same attributes and traits that his father Abraham did. It says in verse 1 of chapter 26, there was a famine in the land besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. Then the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants, I give all these lands and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham, your father, and I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of the heaven. I will give to your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So here Isaac receives this glorious promise, the same one that Abraham, his father, received. And God again is confirming to Abraham's children, this being Isaac, that he's going to fulfill his promise of these nations being blessed. And Isaac should pay careful attention about the promise of God. Because when God promises him something, he needs to remember that when the trials come, not to lose sight of God. Now in verse 6, So Isaac dwelt in Gerar, and the men of the place asked about his wife. Uh-oh. And he said, She is my sister. For he was afraid to say, She is my wife, because he thought, Lest the men of the place kill me for Rebekah, because she is beautiful to behold. Now does this sound familiar? Yeah, we read about how Abraham, his father, did the exact same thing twice. And many times what we see is often children take on the, the sins of their parents sometimes, their characteristic, their traits. So how do we lead our family? Are we leading them with that example of holiness, of purity, of what is right, what is good? Again, in, in verse 8, Now it came to pass, when he had been there a long time, that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through a window and saw there was Isaac, showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Quite obviously, she is your wife. So how could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I said, lest I die on account of her. Now notice, 
the Lord revealed to the king exactly what was happening in the situation. And I, I see just like in previous with Abraham, when he said, oh, my wife is my sister, it's not my wife. The Lord prevented the king from doing any wrong to Sarah and to Abraham. He intercepted wrongdoing from happening in their marriage. And in the same way, God allows the king to be, it to be revealed that Isaac and Rebecca are actually married. He looks out through the lattice of his window and he sees Isaac and Rebecca being all cuddly, probably. Now, the jig is up. They realize, okay, these people are married. And again, in verse 10, And Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might have soon lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech charged all his people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. So you see, when you allow God to take over and to allow his will to just be done when you pray rather than sinning to get your way done, it's always much better. Even when it seems like by being holy and by being righteous, you're putting yourself in in a bad spot, the reality is God is pleased with you. That when you are obedient to God's word, in eternity, there is rewards. You know, sometimes we're going to come across those situations in life where we just think it'll just be easier if we just sin in this particular situation. It'll just be easier if we lie, we cheat, we steal. But we're not trusting God when we do that. We're thinking that we know better than God. We're thinking that we are in control, but we're not. God is in control. Allow him to take you exactly where he wants you to. It says in verse 12, Then Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. And the Lord blessed him. The man began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous, for he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants. So the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped up all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, and they had filled them with earth. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are, so, you are much mightier than we. Now again, you have these two nations now growing. These two tribes. And there's these wells that are being used that the king Abimelech, in order to, to get in the way of Isaac and his tribes, they start bearing these wells. Because they were envious, it says. So now there's struggle as Isaac and the children of Abraham are growing more. God is prospering them. But many times when God is allowing us to to grow, 
we're going to come across trials. We're going to come across difficult situations. See, the Christian walk, the life that we have when we're walking and abiding with Christ, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden everything becomes perfect. It doesn't mean that the roads are going to be smooth and everyone's going to be nice to us. No, they're dealing with struggles, with trials that are life-threatening, stopping up wells, their very source of vitality, their source of life, water, is being stopped. And it's in these situations when we, we need to, again, rely on God, on Christ, on his love, not to act in the flesh, but to let God's wisdom lead and guide us. In verse 17, then Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water, which they had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. For the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. He called them by the names which his father had called them. Also Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well well of running water there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they quarreled with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that one also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well. And they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, because he said, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Now that word Rehoboth, it literally means spacious. I mean, look, okay, God has given us now a place to dwell. Now it says in verse 23, Then he went up from there to Beersheba, And the Lord appeared to him that same night and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar, with Ahuza, one of his friends, and Phicol, the commander of his army. And, and Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? But they said, We have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. So we said, Let there now be an oath between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm since we have not touched you and since we have done nothing to you but good and have sent you away in peace, you are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast and they ate and drank. Then they rose early in the morning and swore an oath with one another and Isaac sent them away and they departed from him in peace. Now I love how God makes Isaac's enemies even to be at peace with him. I'm reminded of David 
the psalmist as he's writing Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie beside green pastures. And there's a verse in, in that chapter where it, it talks about God preparing a table before him in the presence of his enemies. And I marvel at that verse. Because sometimes that's exactly where God allows us to go. He allows us to be in that place where we're surrounded by enemies. But he brings peace amongst us. Despite the fact that it, we're amongst enemies, he allows us to have this banquet before us. And with this, I'm reminded that God is sovereign. Some people have taught that David was wrong for living amongst Philistines. And I've heard Bible studies taught on this. But I believe that the reason why David was able to say, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, was because God was guiding David, an anointed man. God didn't anoint the land of the Philistines. He anoints people. He didn't have his Holy Spirit come upon Israel, the land. He can't had his Holy Spirit come upon people, the Jews, there. See, the Spirit doesn't want to anoint and make our plans so special. He wants to make you the vessel. God anoints people. The church, it's not the building. It's you. And may we continue to have this peace of God living so intensely in us that it spreads to others. That we can say like David, you prepare that table before me. It says in verse 30, So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. And they arose early in the morning and swore an oath with one another, and Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. It came to pass the same day that Isaac's servants came and told him about the well which they had dug and said to him, We have found water. So he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When Esau was 40 years old, he took as wives Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they were a grief of mine to Isaac and Rebekah. Now we see again Esau partaking, desiring, and feeding his flesh. He's not taking wives from the family of God, no. He's taking wives from outside, from the pagan nations. And as we, we're going to continue uh, in the next weeks here, studying the relationship of Esau and Isaac and their, their, their parents, their children, we're going to see exactly how this family drama unfolds. 
and see how despite all the craziness that takes place within this family unit, that God uses all these things to work together for their good. That God uses this, this family, to bring in the Messiah. And we're reminded that we are not to rely on our flesh as Esau is. So how do we overcome the flesh? How do we overcome the overwhelming temptation to do what our flesh is telling us to do? Again, I remind us that he who lives in us is greater than he who is in this world. I'm reminded that we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus, that Christ has already won that battle for us. I'm reminded to put on the armor of Christ to wear the the gospel of peace, to have truth upon our, our belt, the breastplate of righteousness, the sword of the spirit, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. All of this to fight in the spiritual battle. To surrender to God, to Jesus Christ fully, completely. Who did not do his own will there in the garden of Gethsemane. But said, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Who gave us quite the example to follow after. May you follow after his example this week and his love and his peace and sharing with others and allowing him to be sovereign over your life. To not be that hill catcher. But use the name of Jesus this week. Share it with your friends. Share it with your family members what Jesus has shared with you this week. Tell them about God's love. Tell them about what God did for them on the cross, what God did for you this week. And be filled with his spirit. May you grow in faith. May you grow in his grace. Knowing he has a plan for your life. Let's end with this worship song. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for this day. We pray and we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would forgive us for our sins, that you would make us new, Lord, that you would cleanse us, Teach us to trust in you, Lord God. May we not just feed our flesh, Lord, but may we feed our spirit. May we continue to pour into ourselves your Holy Spirit, Lord. May that spirit just grow in us in faith, in truth, in love.
lead us, Father, into this calling, this adventure of life that you have set before us. We love you, Lord Jesus. We praise you, we thank you. going to be meeting in my backyard 10 30 a.m if you'd like to join us for communion come on down we'll see you guys god bless <laughs>